This episode of See Here is dedicated to Mikey. He just doesn't seem to make enough movies, does he? episode 53 we've made it to 53 they said we wouldn't make it beyond 49 but they were wrong on this show for the first time we're together as a trio again in quite a few months the mighty three the mighty trio on the left side of my skype screen from seoul in south korea doing his farewell jog of south korea mr tim merrill howdy 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 on the right side of my screen from bath in england mr bernard stickwell Good morning. Hello. We're here to do something that we've not really done much of. I'm trying to think, apart from Allegro Non Troppo, have we ever done a non-English language film? Um, I don't know if we have, actually. Oh, well, there you go. We're going to go for that this time. We're going to be discussing a film from 1998 made by a man who you've already gone and implied, Tim, is a little bit prolific. His name is Takashi Mikae, and the name of the film is Blues Harp. We'll be talking about that after we listen to the trailer. <laughs> to episode 53 of C here. My name's Morris. I'm over here in Melbourne. Tim is over in Seoul. Bernie's in Bath. So we're here to talk today about a film directed by Takashi Mikae. And I was very, very excited to know that he'd made a film that actually fit our creed. And if this is your first time listening to the show, let me just quickly explain the idea behind C here is that we discuss films that have music in some way or musicians as thematically part of the storyline, be it a document or be it a narrative, we've occasionally broken the rules where we've talked about a film that is a musical and the story itself didn't have anything to do with music as such, but it's our podcast, we can do what we like. But this time around, as I said, I was very, very excited to know that a director that I'm pretty sure all three of us hold in high regard, Takashi Miike, had gone and directed a film that fit our modus operandi. The film was called Blues Harp. It was uh, released in 1998. It was written, and let's see if I can pronounce 
pronounce these names without absolutely butchering them, Toshiko Matsuo and Tohiyaki Morioko. It's starring Hiroyuki Ikeuchi as the character called Shuji, Saichi Tanabe, who played Kenji, and Saori Sekino, who played the character Tokiko. Did I do that right, guys? I hope mm-hmm. Good. You nailed it. Ah, terrific. Sounded good to me, but what do I know? All those years of learning Japanese have paid off well. So, according to IMDb, the tale is an ambitious Yakuza, Kenji, befriends harmonica-playing bartender Shuji, who moonlights as a part-time drug dealer for the opposing gang. Their friendship is threatened by Kenji's plans for advancements, as well as by his bodyguard's growing jealousy of Shuji. Yeah, okay, that'll, that'll suffice, I guess. I should probably also say, fittingly enough, the music for this film was written by one called Atsushi Okuno. Really, I guess I should be talking about the composer, given that we are a music-related podcast. It seems bizarre that on the one hand that McKay made a film that even remotely qualified for C here but I was ecstatic to find that this existed and one that was not usually part of the conversation when film people discuss his work. Before we get into the themes and details of Blues Heart, let's go around the table and I want to ask you both, what do you recall was the first Mickey film that you saw and under what circumstances? I'm not a huge Mickey aficionado. Uh, I've seen a bunch of his movies which are pretty much the ones that most people have seen but I've never really done any deeper mm-hmm. um, and that, that certainly isn't because I don't like his work it's just a bit daunting when he's made what over 200 films no, or... he's, well he just recently released no? film number 100 still pretty daunting mm. filmography isn't it I think the first film of his I saw was probably Audition and I don't remember I think somebody basically lent me the DVD when did Audition come out? Audition probably came out around 99 to 2000, around okay. that, I think. Yeah, that sounds more like it. Yeah, yeah. I saw that and very much enjoyed it, and I still like it very much. I'd say it's one of my favourite of his uh, movies that I have seen. And I've seen G the Killer and Gozu and Visitor Q, and I must have seen a few others, but those are the ones that kind of spring to mind immediately. So fully aware of the man and his work, but just haven't uh, explored it that much. And i got to say, I was kind of pleased when Morris this film because as you say Morris it's kind of like oh wow Mike made a film that's got a kind of musical theme to it which you wouldn't necessarily expect but at the same time I kind of wasn't surprised because he seems to have dabbled in pretty much everything mm. so uh, I'm looking forward to talking about this one wait a minute Visitor Q wasn't that uh, his Disney tribute <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fun for all the family, um, literally. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I think the first thing that I saw of Mike's actually was in the theater. Um, back in Midnight Madness, they showed Fudo, The Next Generation, which was an earlier film that came out before Blues Harp. And that was based on a manga. And then I think when I came over to Korea, I had a friend of mine, Jason, and I, we used to swap stuff with people abroad in the early days of the internet. And I got a VCD of this Mike film called Full Metal Yakuza or Full Metal Gokuda. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, one of his direct to DTVs, what they call them, direct to video, because he was actually a pretty prolific DTV guy before he got into film. And then I think after Fudo, the first feature that he did like Bernie I saw Audition and after Audition it was Dead or Alive series Right. Then Visitor 2, and then, you know, later on, Ichi and everything. And I think one way that a friend of mine, Mark Schilling, he's a journalist in Tokyo, and he's been writing for years and years and years on Japanese cinema. 
And Mark actually agreed with me. I was amazed in my assessment where I said that I thought you have to look at Mike as a director, as somebody behind the wheel of a car or a motorcycle. Every film that he does is him deciding to basically operate at a certain speed. And what I mean by that is that some of his films are this full throttle and some of his films are very slow and methodical. You know, they cruise along, but it all depends on what speed he wants to basically operate at. His fan base is so varied because I know there's a lot of people that like his very full-on right to the red line, right to the limit stuff like Visitor Q and Ichi and then there's other people that appreciate his more jaunty stuff like, you know, Zebra Man or the Yokai remake that he did and the Katakuris it's like a journey instead of your eyeballs are locked right into the dashboard you're going to die at any minute. I mean, like that's what a lot of people associate with Mikei is that that full throttle but like i say he, he operates at different speeds and it all depends on what he's saying and where he wants to take you if you look at him like that he makes perfect sense because a lot of people say you can't pigeonhole this guy where is he going to go next and it's just like well wherever he wants to take you it seems to me that a lot of the articles that i've read and a lot of the conversations on the film forums seem to really do focus on the transgressive stuff that he does and, you right. know the, the films that you've already gone and mentioned like you know itchy the killer and audition and gozu you know the very very transgressive very full on stuff and i like the fact that you've mentioned there tim that the one consistency in his oeuvre is diversity the first film that i went to see him and I'm as per usual I came on late onto the bandwagon but in 2011 there was the cinematic release of his remake of the film Harakiri Death of a Samurai so I went with Max to see that and it was maybe a little unusual in that it was a theatre watch and I gather that most people purely by virtue of the fact that he's made so many films have only had the opportunity to see him or his work on DVD Blu-ray streaming just home video and wasn't the sort of film that was in the typical conversation this wasn't a transgressive film it wasn't overly violent and it wasn't of a transgressive sexual nature like something like visitor q is so really to that degree i think i've only seen maybe about 10 percent of Mike's output but that's about a dozen films i've yet to see a film i didn't like and i'd like to think that a lot of what i've seen has been quite diverse and i really come onto this saying i've never had the nerve to watch itchy the killer <laughs> We once had a conversation, Tim, where you said to me, look, if you've watched Visitor Q, that's more transgressive than Itchy the Killer is. It's just oh, yeah. different. But yeah, yeah. It, uh, Visitor Q is Itchy's definitely... almost just cartoonish in its... Right, uh, absolutely. Well, well, in its way, sort of Visitor Q is as well. But I mean, I know what you're saying, like, cartoonish in its violence, but Visitor Q had these moments that were just so ridiculous that right. you yeah. couldn't take it seriously. Ichi was based on a manga, right? It was based on, you know, comic books to begin with, whereas Visitor Q was a story that was written separate. Right. But one thing that I really appreciate, though, about everything that Mikke's ever done is the fact that when you look at a lot of the major studio directors in any country, they basically have to toe the line to basically satisfy the tastes of the general public. Whereas Mike has said, look, 
this is what I'm serving. You can eat it or you can fucking starve. I don't give a shit. But I think that he's drawn people into, he's made things that have been interesting enough, alluring enough, that have been well-constructed enough. He's really kind of made himself a trademark name to the point of where people will say, I don't know exactly what he's going to do, but I know it's going to be interesting. And I'm in, just based on the fact of what he's done before, his pedigree. Technically, a very good director. He's always coming up with something that's interesting. It's interesting yeah. to him. He's not saying, well, what am I going to do that's going to draw everybody in? He's saying, no, 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 no. This is what I want to do. Like, this is what I think is really interesting and cool. And if you think it's interesting and cool, too, you're going to like it. If you don't, well, tough shit. I don't care. Mm. <laughs> you know? He's almost like a Japanese Woody Allen in that he's just obviously compelled to make films. And this is what he does. Sure. You almost get the impression once he's made a film, he's not really that fussed what happens to it because he's already nope. on to the next one. Exactly. So it's just, you know, it's in his blood. It's what he does. I guess, though, the difference between what he does and what Woody Allen does is Woody has just found different ways of telling, it's maybe a little bit unfair, but he's found different ways of telling the same or a similar story. Yeah, you, absolutely. You, you know, with a few exceptions, but over the last 20 years, even if you don't watch the opening titles, you will pick within five minutes minutes oh yeah this is a woody allen yeah, film yeah. oh yeah his sphere of in, uh, his kind of uh, circle of interest is a lot smaller than Mike. Right, Mike right. will tackle what, pretty much anything won't he probably my favorite Mike film out of the dozen or so that i've seen is the bird people in china <laughs> Watching that, you would really not think that that is a Mikkei film at all. I almost sort of think it's like a, a gentle Yakuza meets Northern Exposure type of film. It's this fantastical element. Yeah, there's a Yakuza theme in there, but that's not what the focus of the film is supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. That's as gentle as it comes. Diversity alone isn't enough to make a great filmmaker. It's right. certainly an admirable yeah, trope. Yeah. But he says, I'm a storyteller first, and I'm interested in all sorts of stories. Like, you know, Tim, you've right. often gone to made the analogy of I don't just like eating this type of meal I like eating that type of meal and that works so much for Mikkei's output this is going to sound funny to you guys maybe but when I think of Mikkei for some weird reason and maybe I was off my head one night watching uh, something I had been in my cups but I immediately thought of something like the Hunchback of Notre Dame like Charles Lawton or the Phantom of the Opera in the sense that there's a real beauty there's a real kind of honesty and a real humanity in ugliness. He has this ability to shove your face into broken glass or a pile of shit and show you the beautiful aspects of the worst elements of humanity. And he does this again and again and again in different ways. Even with Visitor Q, where you laugh at things that you actually almost like want to hit yourself for laughing at. He has this incredible ability to show integrity and show beauty, just show really honest humanity. He goes to the highest or the most extreme elements to really show true humanity. He doesn't wallow in it, does he? Even though no. in, in a way he does, it's not there. It's not like misery porn. Because yeah. I mean, elements to bring it back to a blues harp, I mean, just the, the kind of setting you know it's in a poor area people it's a run down sort of fairly scabby little kind of seaside port town by the look of it Osaka but it's not misery porn is it the main guy is a drug dealer the other main guy is a gangster these are people who are traditionally in movies are fairly shitty and leading sort of crappy unpleasant violent lives but well 
they sort of are, but I just wanted to make one contrast to a man who I know is Mike's hero, and that's Kinji Fukasaku, who you know, most famously directed the Battles Without Honor and Humanity set of films. <laughs> Saku had been on the record for saying that he wasn't really happy with a lot of the Yakuza films that had come before him, and I really wish I knew which ones in specific he was referring to, but he said that he felt that a lot of those films tended to give some level of honour and respect to the gangster culture, at least, you know, not necessarily painting them to be completely favourable, but saying that they're tough guys, but you've got to respect them. And in his right. films, he basically said, no, you don't have to respect them, they're the lowest of the low they've gone exactly. and ruined a lot of society there's no character in the forms that i've seen that's sympathetic there's you know i think one yeah. character who you maybe sort of think okay this guy's got a little bit of a more level head than the rest of them but pretty much i could see that creator of sopranos would have to have been a big fan of uh, david uh what's his no 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 you're thinking the wire think of it later but really the the whole thing about the sopranos is you know everybody's a shit yeah. you can respect yeah. that they have what they're doing makes business sense but right. no one has any humanity well, and that's the I same mean, thing in battles without honor and humanity and yet yeah. it, i think that to an extent in his yakuza films mike also goes by the thing that no these people are characters that you need to sympathize with but it's still not black and white even in mm. some person yeah. who can be absolutely horrid they might still i don't know pat a dog yeah. but you know this all goes back to you know peck and Bob too with the wild bunch because, I mean, the Wild Bunch was exactly the same thing, where Pack and Paw said, you know, like the whole mythos of the West and the way that you'd hear a pop and somebody would fall off a horse and, you know, the, there was good guys and bad guys and it was all binary. And he was saying that's all a bunch of shit. Everybody's deplorable in the Wild Bunch. And, I mean, you know, right. and, and everybody gets their comeuppance. It's like when we think of humanity, sometimes people are kind of misconstrued and thinking that humanity means that everyone's virtuous and it's not. Yeah, we all have human elements to us, but it's all in a matter of degrees. I mean, I mean, we can still be pretty deplorable people, but still have emotions. We just choose not to use them, right? Let's talk about Blue's Harp itself. A couple of articles that I'd read had gone and compared Blues Harp to the Black Society trilogy. And I think this is sort of a little bit no. superficial because yeah. you know, they're Yakuza films, this is a Yakuza film. But I found particularly the Black Shinjuku Society, the first of the trilogy, was definitely a film that I would say is transgressive and very violent and very, very cruel, very, very nasty. The right. other two aren't quite nasty in that regard, but they're sort of sad tales. I almost see, in some ways, Blue's Half to be, maybe happy is not quite the right word, but very hopeful in a lot right. of ways. My first thought watching the film was that the music connection was going to be a little bit superficial as far as the podcast goes. But after watching it a couple of times, it occurred to me that it really was a very see here type of film. There are films that we've all watched that talk about the so-called power of music, 
and whatever other problems we have in life, the power of music will get us through. And, you know, I mean, two examples that we've discussed on the program, We Are The Best and Good Vibrations. In both those films, you know, the love of music superseded whatever it was, you know, religious or political violence and the drudgery of the main character's existence and what society expected of them. In Blues Harp, the power of music angle is not pushed as much to the front. There's a lot of subtlety in this film, but I think that any scene in this film that's of a positive nature is set in the bar around the music. Those scenes convey joy and they're really focal points of positive developments for, for Shuji. I mean, it's where he meets Takiko, who he ends up falling in love with and having a relationship with. He gets pulled out of his shell to actually play the harmonica with the house band in front of an audience instead of just sitting around and playing it for himself because he's very, very much an introvert. And this is sort of conveyed at the beginning of the film. We'll come to that shortly. Up, no doubt. Later on in the film, he truly comes into his own where he gains full confidence. He's leading the band once the main singer of the band says, I've got to bow out. And Shuji becomes this great figure of confidence. So there's also Kenji's story as the Yakuza, and he's basically trying to sort of climb up the corporate ladder, as it were, within the Yakuza and become a boss through deception and deceit. And that's a fascinating story. But anything that's positive and hopeful out of this film revolves around music. And I also got to say that I got myself very, very excited at one point in the film where I'm listening to a tune. I'm thinking, hang on, I know that song. Hurry, I know, yeah, 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 yeah. I know exactly what you're going to say. New Coat of Paint, the Tom Waits song yeah. being sung in Japanese. Oh, yes. I love that so much. Yeah. There's a couple of things that initially hit me with this film. Is like, first off, this film could have been a really, really short film, you know, because you know you could have subtitled this film Blues Harp, aka There He Is, the end. <laughs> Because, I mean, the way it starts out, Chigi, he makes a choice, and that's where it goes. But this reminded me, this film, this was the first time I'd seen this. And it reminded me almost of like a 50s American film. You're in a jazz bar with that sax player, and the sax player just happens to know a guy in the neighborhood who's a gangster, and it's like a noir. Like, it, it really reminded me of the whole noir concept in a way. I was going to say the same thing, Tim. It's very much about a person who, through the choice they make, they get into a certain situation right. and then fate right. just takes over. Right. Not to go too far ahead, but I think that what I was saying earlier about, you know, Mike in, in his way that he, the metaphor of him driving a car, driving fast or driving slow or whatever, I think that there's three different speeds in this film, actually. Whereas you get Chigi, the main bartender guy, and he's more of a laid back and very kind of placid type of dude. And then you get the guy who's the singer of the band, who's supposed to be the front man and all that. And he's kind of a neutral guy. 
where eventually he gets to a point where he says, look, man, I'm out. My dad's sick and I've got to raise my family and do what's right. And then you get the gangster dude and Kenji's full on speed, man. He's just like this little piranha, just like, nah. you can just see he's just this to- coiled ball of tension through the whole film. And he's taking showers all the time and you just see him just this writhing in the shower, just like this. Yeah, there's coiled. kind of a reason for that, though, isn't there? We'll oh, get yeah. to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just, he's just coiled up ball of tension. And I, I see these three speeds in the film. And it's, it's interesting, just... it's, it's, you were saying earlier, Tim, your kind of theory with Mike and the speeds at which he goes. Yeah. The opening of Blue's Harp, that whole sequence where Kenji is being chased, beaten right. up and chased by some other gangsters, that's proper, full-on, kinetic, violent, fast-paced Michi, isn't Mike. it? It just, yeah. Mike, sorry, Michi yeah. the killer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then uh, you, that opening is is very much in that style. But then there are moments in the film which are really sort of quiet and still. Oh, yeah, sort yeah. Of and they reminded me of uh, Kurosawa. Another one that wasn't a Mike film was they reminded me this one shot of the little boy with his father walking on, yes. like walking towards the beach. It reminded me of. Have you guys ever seen the film Sonantin? Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Takeshi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminded me of Sonantin. Yes. Oh, hang on. Is, is that fireworks? You're talking no, about Hanabi. That's Hanabi. Ha- Hanabi. Yeah. Is, that, is that the one with the father walking with his son to the beach? I, th- I thought it was, that was that one. Maybe it was, no. but I'm, I'm confused. Either no, Son and Tin or Hanabi. Is it Kikijuro you're thinking of, Tim? That's the one with the uh, little boy, isn't it? And right. the father. Yeah, right, it's right, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, it was just, I seen that shot, though, in, in Blues Harper. I'm like, wait a minute. I've seen yeah, this yeah. before. I've totally yeah. seen this before. Like, this reminds me of something else. Not that it's a complaint against the film or anything, but I think because... Because this is an earlier Mike film, he's still learning to transition into film, I think, because there's a lot of stuff in this film that is kind of a lot of what you would consider to be like direct video type of stuff. There's a lot of video edits and a lot of almost like music video type stuff. Yeah. It's almost like Video Toaster. Used to be a program called Video Toaster where you could do just experimental cuts and edits and swipes and all. It just seems like it's really a mixture of so many things. This film, as much as he's telling a story that's there and the story is valid, the the process that he uses to go through the whole thing is really kinetic because he just uses so many different things. At the beginning of the film, there's these fast cuts that look almost pornographic because if you look at them for a split second, sure, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. what the hell's going on there? And then later on, it's a shot of Kenji brushing his teeth. But yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. It's kind of foreshadowing what's going on, but it is a very yeah. 90s look at me with my new editing software right. kind of thing, yeah, yeah. isn't it? I think there's definitely elements of that in this, but I don't know. I think it is quite a mature film in a way as well, because it certainly goes deeper than its surface would maybe indicate. I think you know? this is the so. sort of film that's going to warrant a lot of views. This is one I think I'll be coming back to quite a lot. You know, something like Audition, don't get me wrong, I adore it, but it's the sort of film I think I could only watch once in a while. This is something... Right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That even through two views, I got something more the second time around, even than I did the first time around. And as you say, Bernie, I think it's a very mature film for a filmmaker who was still early days. You know, he hadn't really made yeah. that many. He'd, he'd made like a few director video things, and this might have been fairly early in his feature films. I see what you're talking about with the whole video clip look in, in that early scene, but yeah. that's a minority part of the film. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it's a huge part of the film. There are moments like that, but I don't think 
think he overdoes it. No, I like the parts when he he was actually cutting up the video games with the actual violence. Yeah, that was I good. thought that was, that was really sharp. The way they're playing yeah. Street Fighter and you seeing the guy getting kicked and he's really getting kicked. I mean, like, I, I just thought it was kind of neat the way he, he kind of diced that up. There's that weird scene later on as well in the film where Chuji is in the diner talking to some gangster guy and it goes into this really weird slow motion choppy video effects. You know the, right. the scene I mean? And, and yeah. It was almost like a weird time lapse thing and that really didn't seem to make much sense as to why he was doing that at that point. I think that the very opening scene of the Tim, what you mentioned there with the violence and the chase scene with Kenji was the second scene of the film, the very first scene of the film, where we see Shuji as, I don't know, an eight, nine, a, ten year a old. Little as yeah. A, yeah, as a little kid. As a little kid. And like that opening minute, I thought, all right, you've gone and hooked me. I know I'm going to love the rest of the film. Shuji. In case you haven't seen the film out there, let me set this up for you. So it's set on Okinawa. We get a long shot of a street on the wrong side of town, or maybe it's the only side of town, but it's fairly poor. And we hear a simple melody being played on the harmonica by this young boy, Shuji. And it's obviously a hot summer's day, sitting out there, just sitting in his shorts and singlet. And he's playing this simple melody. We see a truck come from the distance, and it's driving up to his house. Shuji's mother comes out, and she's flirting with him. She sees Shuji and says, shouldn't you be at school? And he says, but mother, it's school holidays. She didn't even remember. She just goes inside. And then we see a plane fly overhead with a camera on the ground level, looking up at Shuji, and we see the plane flying overhead. In that 60 seconds to two minutes, we already know a ton of things. We know that he's neglected. We know that he's an introvert and probably has no friends. And the only thing that keeps him going is the simple joy of music. And the playing is you know, metaphorical. And, and, and it's not unique, I admit, to Mikay. But he does it extremely well with a shot where the plane flying overhead is the unattainable. It's the plane going somewhere else to a, possibly a better life, which you know obviously is a, a metaphor that they use all the time in films with train but this plane it might be just flying over his head but it's completely out of his reach and we've already learned within 60 seconds or two minutes so much Mikay has gone given us so much information and it's not the only time he does this in the film and I'll probably bring up another couple of instances where he does it I think very very subtly it's not punched in your face for a director who we know for his transgressive cinema and being extremely violent or extremely sexually kinky or however you want to put it he shows a lot of great restraint in this film and as we've already gone and said this is an early film and maybe he was yet to decide that he was going to be transgressive but he has gone back and forward as you've already gone and said to him he has lots of different stories to tell and he has lots of different speeds that he's going to go at it and I just love how in this film he does show all the speeds as you've gone and said and this opening is just such a beautiful opening to a film it's a real masterclass in how to pull that whole everything you need to know about that character in sort of under yeah. two minutes in a beautifully shot little vignette right at the start the film that is just you know that's somebody who really understands how film works it's just absolutely beautiful isn't it and the contrast between that and the visceral nature of the, the scene that you've already described yeah the sort of yeah. uh, mtv video look of the chase scene this gang chasing kenji down the street and then getting
getting into this very, very violent fight and intercut with shots of the bar where the blues band is playing. It shows that both these men, as we'll get to meet them throughout the film, have their different approach to what's visceral and to what's exciting. So in one case, Kenji finds his way through wanting to be the head honcho of a violent Yakuza family. Uh, and he's going to go through a lot of pain to do it. Shuji, he likes the music. He likes being in the bar and he's just happy to let life pass him by. He's challenged later on by saying, well, you do something artistically. But I love how we get those contrasts within that two minute or three minute scene. And that contrast itself to the opening scene where we see Shuji for the first time. And you use a perfect words there, Bernie, masterclass in filmmaking. The story is not a new story by any means. Like I said, you know, it can go back to like the 40s or 50s or hardcore noir but in all of these certain films it always winds up with somebody being injured and somebody else deciding to help them and it's just like you get to the point where like look dude nobody ever asked why did you get hurt you know why did they do this to you like why did you get fucked up you know it's oh okay then forget it i'm not gonna have anything to do with you no they immediately get drawn into helping these people and then they become their best friends by helping them and then it all goes to shit from there that's no, the dramatic device though isn't it you right, know as exactly. soon as Shuji sees uh, Shuji sees Kenji in the alleyway and he decides yep. not to give him up you just yep. know that where the whole film is going it's like this is right. going to come back and bite him in the ass big time right. and in that one scene there's a part that as you're implying there Tim doesn't make much sense because Shuji won't give him up despite the fact that these people who are chasing him are part of the game that Shuji sells sure. drugs for. So he actually has a yeah, connection yeah. to them. And yet the part that does make complete sense is within Japanese society, we hear a lot about honor and doing the right thing by someone who's looked right. after you. So Kenji right. feels duty bound throughout the film to look after him and to but, help him out. But the biggest mistake that Shuji made is helping him to begin with. You know? right. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah. But I was going to say also that I think the club itself is very symbolic because I think the club itself is symbolic of youth. When the old singer of the band, he says, I don't know how long I can pass off being young. What does he say? He says, I've spent too much time doing things for myself. I've got to do things for everybody else now. Like, I've got to go on. And then when you see the owner of the club, there's one time where he's actually sitting there by himself playing a little tune on the guitar. He's going back to a moment where, you know, he remembers the joy that he had. The tune that he's playing is actually quite melancholy, isn't it? Right. So it's kind of reflected through that. It's a lament of of youth. I think there's there's that great scene where the singer of the band is talking to uh, Shuji and trying to persuade him to, you know, take his spot, basically. And as you say, he's kind of 
talking about how he's having to grow up and look after his family and so on. Whilst they're sort of having that conversation, they're having it on the roof of the club, like a couple of teenagers. They're both dressed like a couple of teenagers. I mean, Shuji's probably in his 20s. This other guy's probably 30s, 40s. And there's a bit where the singer, he's got a baseball and he just kind of throws it casually. Yeah, he breaks something. And he's like, oh no, sorry. And it's just such a teenage thing to do whilst having that conversation. That's such a beautifully observed and put together a scene, I think. I thought that was really good. This is the elephant in the room for the film. And I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but I'm going to ask you guys a question. And you can answer yes or no. Was there a little bit of a love triangle going on in this? Um, of course there was. I don't think it's giving anything away to know that no. the gay subtext in this film, it's not exactly in your face, but it's a little bit more than just being subtle. There's a scene early on in the film after Shuji has gone and rescued Kenji and Tokiko has gone and patched him up that... We see Kenji looking at Shuji sleeping in his bed and Shuji yep. sleeping there completely yeah, yeah. bare-assed and he's staring at him. Also, remember there's a scene later on where the two of them are speaking to each other in a field and Kenji is saying, yeah, uh, here's yeah, some yeah, money, yeah. I'm going to look after you. And he says, tell me, do you like me? What? <laughs> Shuji says, yeah, yeah, sure, I like you. And Kenji says to him, you just don't understand what I'm asking you. He's putting him in the friend zone. Right. (laughs) It's to Mike's credit that he does that. I mean, obviously, we're talking about those scenes now, but it's done quite slowly and subtly throughout the film, and he just drops these little hints. But it's actually a really important part of the story because... A certain other person who may have interest in certain other characters kind of engineers a situation which leads to the, again, I don't want to give anything away, but it leads to the kind of climax of the film and things kind of wind up going kind of pretty much pear-shaped. And that that is all down because somebody is, somebody has feelings for somebody else that might not be reciprocated, shall we say. But I I think it's really beautifully and subtly done up to a point. I'll be completely honest with you. There was a point in the film where a light bulb just went on over my head and I was like oh shit okay I get it I understand now you know my gaydar is not very good anyway according to uh, my (laughs) wife but uh, (laughs) it's really nicely done I'll bring up one more point that sort of says if you haven't picked it up yet here's another indication Kenji is having sex with his boss's wife as a way of getting an in to plant his way as becoming the boss of that particular Yakuza clan. And I think, was it Bernie already mentioned this, that after every sex scene that where Kenji's having sex with the boss's wife, he goes into the shower. He's vigorously brushing his teeth. Well, no, he is later. The first time you see that happen, he's just in the shower and brushing his teeth. Actually, I don't think you even see him in the shower. He's just brushing his teeth. No, you do see him in the shower and he's, he's brushing really vigorously. What McKay 
does is there gets to be a point, and once again, I'm, you know, I'll try not to spoil this, but the boss's wife comes to a certain realization at a later point in the film, which if she'd come to this realization after the first time that mm-hmm. Kenji has a shower in the film, I don't think it would have been as effective. But it's like you tell a joke, there's always three iterations before we get to the punchline. And in this film, we get three showers that Kenji has. And the first time we're sort of thinking, oh, he's brushing his teeth a bit vigorously. Maybe he likes oral hygiene. But every time we're sort of realizing, oh, no, he's trying to scrub himself clean. The first shower scene, the first time that happens, I didn't get that from it. It's only the second and the third time where it's pretty right. explicit what's going on. So like yep. I say, this is me dropping these hints. And if you're a, an observant viewer, like you were saying, Tim, the very start of the film, you get the, all those quick edits, which are almost like foreshadowing things. One yeah. of those is uh, Kenji brushing his teeth, isn't it? There's the one time where Kenji goes after one of the guys from the opposing gang and he says, hey, we don't put up with speed. We don't put up with that shit. But I think that Kenji's a speedhead himself, like through the whole thing. And I think because his nature, he's so highly energetic. He's impatient, isn't he? He needs he's impa- to get yeah. what's going. Yeah, he wants to right, climb but that I'm ladder. Right, but I'm saying, yeah. but he almost seems like a speedhead. He acts before he thinks. And I think that him brushing his teeth, too, initially, the first time, I thought, that's just because he's on speed, man. He's on crank, and he's just going... And I just thought, you know, he's on meth. Like, he's just cranking out. That's what initially what I thought. But then later, when he's actually dry heaving and everything, she's watching him empty his guts. I'm going, oh. Okay. Like Shuji, Kenji is also something of an outsider. You know, right. with Shuji, it seems more obvious because he's just got this harmonica as a friend almost. But with Kenji, he's an outsider because he's gay in a society, and I mean not Japanese society, but within the Yakuza, where I imagine revealing his true nature would not only be dangerous for him, but it would certainly get in the way of his plans of leading that mm-hmm. Yakuza class. I think you started off this part of the conversation, Tim, by saying there's something of a love triangle here, and there is and there isn't. So Tokiko, who ends up becoming Shuji's girlfriend, she's the third part of this triangle, and yet she's not really part of the love triangle, because Kenji is not really jealous of her. She saved him by stitching his wounds, so he's on a bound to save her. He's kind of resentful. Chiji, you know, is with her. I mean, Chiji's with her, but he don't eat lunch at the Y. Chiji's not even aware though is he i think of kenji's feelings towards him that way so right the way he's so flippant to uh chiji like he says so what's her name again yeah like this is his best mate he should know his girlfriend's name he just knows her from a distance like she's nothing and yet there's this scene later on where he comes into the bar and you know, Tokiko is obviously Shuji's biggest fan and a huge encouragement to him. No, get out and play that harmonica. Oh, you're getting a record contract. Yeah, yeah, go for that, go for that. And so there's a scene where Kenji comes into the bar while a band is playing and he watches Shuji almost wistfully. But he says to Tokiko, look, I think I'm going to go. I don't really belong here. I'm, you know, I'm dressed differently to the rest, but you know, you have a nice time. And I think at that point, he sort of says, you know what, you being with him, that's what has to be. I'm quite all right with that. Exactly. I laughed at that one bit, though, where, you know, the old singer of the band, he says to Chuji, you know, come on up here, man. Like, you're great. And she's the only one clapping it. She doesn't yeah. stop. <laughs>
you think it's a big club, but then when you realize it's like a basement, she's the only one clapping. And he's just like, stop clapping. Stop <laughs> clapping. Like, God damn it. And then he goes up there and starts like pulling out this like Paul Butterfield type shit. There's one moment in the film I think that you of all people will particularly appreciate, Tim. The record that sort of brings them together is the essential yeah. little Walter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like he was pouring through the stacks and he's just like, okay, yeah, this is it. But no, I other, show it was, as well. The vinyl never went out of fashion in Japan. Because this is what, <laughs> 97, 98? You go anywhere else no. in the Western world, it's all CDs. But in Japan, there's this huge record shop that he's going through and up right. to cross that record. And it, and it so happens that his girlfriend's working at the counter. Yeah, yeah. Maybe this is me being a little nitpicky. I always laugh at these films where they always try to capture audience reactions to live acts. And they always overdo it with the audience. It's like they've electrified the floor and everybody's just jumping up and down so they don't get shocked. Yeah. And it's like what they're playing and what how the audience is reacting to it is not kind of really relative, right? I've never seen a film that could ever do it. And, uh, and I'm, like, I'm not trying to be racist or bigoted any matter by saying this, but it always seems whenever I see like foreign films and they film like live music in a club, it always seems like everybody's just going overboard. You know, Argeno or Fulci or any of these guys that a rock band's playing. It's like everybody's on PCP or something. So Mike's probably going, come on, more energy, people. Show me. Come on. <laughs> yeah, and they're, they're on. all dancing like the, the opening credits of Friends. Maybe he's got a prop pistol with blanks in it. And he's just pointing it at the crowd. <laughs> Dance. <laughs> you know what? I think in this film, I don't see that as a problem because I think that Mikay also wanted to make a point about the confidence levels of the two characters. So sometimes you have to accentuate something to make your point and in this film we see like Kenji's confidence it should be more than what it is but because he's an outsider in this Yakuza society he never really shows the confidence that you would imagine for someone who is trying to get to the top of that corporate tree and yet we see Shuji who really is very insular and yet once he starts playing the harmonica in front of a crowd that loves him and says yeah give us more play us that tune that he really comes into himself so I think that getting that audience behind him saying maybe they just thought yeah oh, Shuji our bartender the guy who we've yeah, been yeah, buying drinks yeah. for from ages yeah 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 go and play us a tune Shuji and I think that it wouldn't have worked quite as well if they hadn't had the floor electrified under them I think in this case <laughs> I'm really prepared to let Mika have a pass because I see what it is that he's right. trying to do there and I think it's actually really very very warranted in this case right. what you just mentioned about saying that Kenji, he's trying to climb the corporate ladder, but he's not really part of it. They even say that to him. There's a bit where he's sitting there by the river with the other gangster and the other gangster says you know you're the most fucking dishonorable yakuza i've ever met what's ironic is that the guys seeing him as persona non grata in terms of the social structure of the yakuza but at the same time like you said earlier the guy doesn't know that he's also gay which is even further out there so i think that's kind of interesting as well you know he's a rebel but you don't even know how much of a rebel he is you don't even know how far he is out there you know then it, it speaks volumes for the yakuza that that gangster guy who was pointing that out to him is then right. very happy to go along with this plan that they've both concocted so that he can benefit from it as well yeah the owner thing's a little bit bullshit really and it goes it? back to what morris was saying about you know with fukusaku about everybody being a 
bottom feeder, yeah, yeah. everybody being a yeah. backbiter, and that's what it is. And I mean, even the only one, well, the only two that aren't really involved in any of this shit is really like Gigi and uh, his girlfriend. Because I mean, like, you know, yeah, he, he's dealing drugs. Okay. So, yeah, I, you know, you could say he's incriminated in that sense. He doesn't even know what he's getting duped into. No, no, he particularly does. as it gets towards the end of the film. Right, and, he doesn't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas everybody else is just basically crossing them, double-crossing, and, you know, everybody's out for themselves. He's just trying to get out with his girlfriend, you know, and the baby. And trying to do what's right. Well, this is the uh, like the noir aspect as well, isn't it? It's right. just fakes conspiring against him. And you and, do uh, see the one guy yeah. get out, the old singer of the band, where he's on the Greyhound bus with his wife and his kid, and you see him leave. He's the guy that does it right. Yeah, but then he's not mixed up with a Yakuza, is he? He's not no. in that situation. He's just leaving that life for another one, yeah. One more thing I wanted to point out before we sort of like do a bit of a wrap up, and I know that for a film that seemed like it had such a straight ahead story, there are so many aspects to this, and this is a conversation that if we wanted to explore every aspect, we could be going on for hours, but hopefully Mm -hmm. we've given enough of a taste to the listeners out there who haven't seen it to go pick it up. I don't think that we've gone and spoiled it too much, and even if we have, this really is a film about the journey as much as it is as to how it gets resolved, and we haven't gone and given anything away in in that regard how it gets resolved. Hopefully we've given enough of a flavour of the story and that there's politics and all sorts of things in, but before we sort of do a round table, I just wanted to sort of say that one of my favourite moments in the film, and this is like a real smile all the way around my face moment. Once again, in gangster films, the bad guys, all the good guys, they go for their guns and there's a big fight out. Shuji is not of the Yakuza. That's not his weapon of choice. His weapon of choice is to make people happy with his harmonica. This bit, very late in the film, where he gets on stage to play with the band and Tokiko calls out to him. Shuji! So most harmonica players who play in blues bands will have a harp belt around them, each in a different key. She takes the belt out and throws it at him, which he catches. And it's sort of like she's throwing him his guns, like in a gangster. Hey, gangster, here, grab your gun. You're ready to fight. And I just thought that I've got to be honest. You didn't like that? Go on, Morris. I thought that was awful. I thought that was just, that went way too far in a blues traveler territory. Never cool, man. Never cool. (laughs) I'm sorry. I got to say, I absolutely loved it. It, it Fair play. Corny or not, I just thought it just happened to suit that particular moment in the film in light of what happened at a particular point afterwards. So it it was just like to say, right, he'd just gone through this horrific experience. And yeah, it could have been more honest and a little bit, well, yeah, go up and play your set with the band. But I really loved it. I mean, maybe I just like cornball, but (laughs) I I thought it was a great moment. I loved it. It it was super corny and it worked because of that. But it is just me being a bit... uh... Get off bit my of lawn. Yeah, yeah. I was quickly going to say as well, this is a bit of a superficial observation, but this is such a super 90s looking film. Everybody is dressed like... Oh, Shuji only seems to have this giant oversized orange t-shirt, baggy jeans and white trainers. Kenji's kind of henchman, his his right-hand man, has got the, the most 90s-looking sports jackets I've ever seen on a person. A right. couple of the bands that play, there's this kind of, I suppose... 
laid back jazz funk hip hop band that play and their singer looks like the love child of Jamiroquai and I don't know what the hell he was wearing man, but was, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was something else. So the the aesthetic screams nineties. But that's certainly not to its detriment, is you know, it very much anchors it in a place and time, doesn't it? No, you can definitely see, yeah, it, it reeks it's just seeped in nineties, you know, and yeah. it's just TG sitting there playing Street Fighter in the arcade and I got be uh, anal video game there, Tim. He was playing Tekken. It wasn't Street Fighter. Oh, it was Tekken? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then I like that one bit where in other uh, films you would say, yeah, my father's out of the scene. You know, he's gone. I don't know where he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his old man's just living right around the corner in a cardboard box. <laughs> And I like there was the one bit where they were doing a breakdown of the song and you see her moving in and, and setting up the house and then mm-hmm. you see them, you know, doing things together. And then you see him introducing her to his old man in the yeah. cardboard box. <laughs> and then his dad's just like, I don't want anything to do with this shit. You know, like, you know, closes the door. But it was just... Yeah, that was hilarious. I was just like, man, like that's bizarre, wasn't it? Yeah. So let's go around the table. Any final thoughts? Do you recommend the film? Yeah, I would absolutely recommend this. I think that for people that go out and, I mean, for Mickey, people that are interested in Mickey, I think they're going to go initially for his more well-known, for his kind of uh, his heavier hits, you know, like Audition and the other films that he did, or Ichi and all that. And then they can go back and sink into his variations, you know, and his his ruminations on different things. But if this was the first Mike film you were to watch, and then you went into something like Ichi or something else, I think you'd be like, what? Like, what the fuck? It's too much of a weird ride. But I think, like I said, if you you go into his kind of more popular, his more out there things, and then you basically say, okay, this guy is wackier than the shit I was around. He's just going to do what he wants to do then you can sink into his different indulgences. I really, really enjoyed this. I'm still thinking that you obviously were talking about it the next day. I watched it yesterday. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was, I was led in bed last night thinking about it. And when I was having breakfast this morning, I was thinking about it. There's a lot to chew on in this. And, you know, like Tim was saying, it's people who know Mike through the more transgressive in-your-face stuff. I think this would be a real pleasant surprise because it, it really shows Mike is, uh, you know, an intelligent, thoughtful filmmaker. Yep. And he was way back at that point and in his career he wasn't just throwing the shit at the screen as it were you know he's kind of a filmmaker's filmmaker really I oh think. yeah so yeah i was i hadn't heard of this i didn't know what to expect but i very much enjoyed it and it's something that i will return to again and again i think so i totally recommend it i thought nice. it was great it's certainly a film that does feature some of the backstabbing politics and almost shakespearean violence of a yakuza tale that we might be used to from some of Mikay's other films and from you know, other films you know you might sort of think any of the films of suzuki or fukusaka mm-hmm. there's some of that violence so it is typical in some way but it also shows a very personal side of these two outsiders. And I, th- I think one thing that we might not have mentioned is that Shuji is, inverted commas, you know, the good guy. Kenji, I like the fact that he's. we get to see him in relation to Shuji, in relation to his affection for him, but he's a bad motherfucker Yakuza. He's never painted as 
a truly sympathetic character. He is a protagonist, but he's a guy who's a Yakuza for starters and a disloyal Yakuza. Yeah. So he's never painted in a fair way, but he's a well-rounded character. And I That's think, the thing, isn't it? Yeah. I, I yeah. think that Mikay does characterization very, very well. Yeah, he was to right. go to more transgressive places later on, but this is a superb film. It goes back to what we were saying earlier about the idea of people's you know misconceptions of the, t- on the definition of humanity kenji has human aspects to him you know and he has affection and he has certain things but then he chooses to show more of his negative and aggressive nature than he does of his he tries to be affectionate he tries to kind of hint 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 you know like but it just doesn't work for him and then finally he just kind of accepts the way things are going to play out and no spoiler but even though he knows that things are not going to be reciprocated with Gigi, he still takes actions that shows that he still yeah, loves yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was, again, showing that he is, that he has humanity and for a guy who's an absolute shit. I think it's, uh, it speaks volumes of Mike that he can take uh, the kind of format of a Yakuza film because, you know, at this point, how many hundreds of Yakuza films must there be out there? And actually turn in a really nice kind of, like you say, Morris, a character study, an intelligent piece of filmmaking, and bring something just new and interesting to the... Uh, I, I guess you could call it a Yakuza film. There's enough of that in there. It's not just a tale of two guys yeah. with the Yakuza in the background. It is a Yakuza film, but there's a lot of depth to this. That, that, well, that sounds terrible, because that's, that's to thing. say that Yakuza yeah, no, films but... don't have depth, but which I'm certainly not, but this is a personal story and a Yakuza story. There's the Shakespearean right. politics part of it, but there's also also the friendship part of it, but without it being a kitschy friendship story. There's just so much to this, and I really, really love this film. I'm so glad I discovered this and that we were able to talk about it on this program. Is it just me, or did you guys get any a feeling of like almost like Wong Kar Wai with this? That's that's absolutely. And Wong Kar Wai actually made some tough crime films before he started doing things like In the Mood for Love, right, and the like. So yeah, definitely, I could see Wong Kar Wai having made a film like this for sure. Like I, I see a little bit of almost like something like Chunking Express with this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's it's a really... relationship between Shuji and his girlfriend, definitely, yeah. When you think of the first half of Chunking Express, a lot of that choppy action with, oh, I forgot the name of the actress, but you know, the, the, the actress who's wearing the blonde wig and the trench coat, right. a lot of the action is filmed very choppily, just like in that opening scene in Blue's Harp with Kenji right. running from the other mob. I think there's a bit of a blue filter in both films it's there's superficial comparisons but overall i think the mood that both filmmakers were going for was mm-hmm. very very similar so i think that's a, oh, that's yeah. a terrific call Hopefully we've inspired you people out there to go search out this film if you haven't already done so. And if you have seen Blue's Heart before, then please feel free to write into us and tell us whether you agree or disagree or what things we might have missed out. We'd really love to hear from you. If you want to get in contact with us, you can write to us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. You can join a very, very friendly Facebook group. We won't have any smart-ass people go and say any nasty, passive-aggressive things like on you know, some Facebook groups out there. We're all friendly. So <laughs> facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash seehere. That's S-W-H-E-A-R. 
and please let your friends and enemies know that we exist right. so they can download and listen to us because we have egos we want people to listen and know that we exist that's just who absolutely. we are absolutely if you hear about any new uh, films coming up in terms of music documentaries or music biopics or anything like that of any nature please send us trailers and please let us know that things are on the horizon because we're always looking forward to finding out about new things so we can contact people and get in touch with the directors and it's just when you think that there'll never be a Captain Beefheart documentary maybe there's one right around the corner that I don't know about I'm just praying one film that we will be talking about next month and will be revealed right now will be told to us by Bernie because you and I don't know what it is so Bernie it's your pick next month what are we going to be talking about okay well we are going back to America next month but we are going to America via Finland, we are going to be discussing oh. Aki Karasmaki's 1988 film, I think, Leningrad Cowboys Go America. Oh, <laughs> that's on my list of shame. I, but do you know what? Me too. I've not seen it before, so th- th- this should be an interesting discussion. What so, I've meant to see for years and years and years. So uh, next month, we can finally I think get we, into it. Thank you very much for suggesting that. Looking immensely forward to um, bringing that to the show next month anything else that we've done all the housekeeping I think that's it so you've got our recommendation search out this month's film if you want to play along with us search out next month's film Leningrad Cowboys Go America and we'll have a lot of fun so until next month please be nice to each other because a lot of people out in the world are not being nice to each other we have a good community we have wonderful listeners please be nice to each other watch some great films pick up the harmonica learn how to play the harmonica and just don't wear a harmonica belt whatever you do (laughs) (laughs) ah shut up and always remember out there you know it's okay once in a while to be an ass half but don't be a whole (laughs) (laughs) see you next month people cheers cheers bye It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 